0: Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic.
1: A very warm welcome to everyone listening to this new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great uh, episode ahead. Chris, Elliot, and Phil are all here, and I look forward to another great discussion. Today, uh, we're going to have Elliot go first, uh, then Chris, and finally Phil. Elliot will talk about his generalist investor mindset. Uh, Chris will uh, talk about uh, some employee option and repurchase uh, news and issues uh, that he's looked at. And finally, Phil will explain why we might be in the golden age of fraud right now and what that means for all of us investing in the markets. So without further ado, Elliot, I'll turn it to you. Go ahead.
2: Thank you, John. Hope everyone out there had a great week. Uh, good to be back. Um, so what I want to talk about, I effectively want to share what I'd call like a generalist manifesto. I tend to adopt that worldview, and I think it's pretty fundamental to how I approach markets. Um, and I, I kind of was thinking of this idea last week during uh, Chris's section, talking about you know all the areas that, that you could say no to off the bat, and you know thinking about some of the areas being dominated by specialists, others not. But anyway, so, you know, I think many of us share a common appreciation and affinity for Charlie Munger's lattice work of mental models. And I think in many respects, that's effectively, you know, saying let's all be generalists, learn a lot from multiple disciplines and apply it to, you know, our domain. Um, So I come from a random, chaotic background without a linear finance pedigree. So the idea of thinking broadly had been inherently appealing to me. And it's part of what drew me to business analysis in the first place. So what, what I like is, you know, some days we're doing intense math, other days we're doing behavioral psychology and others journalistic style interviews. But like the one underlying theme and constant is always asking questions and looking for answers. So one of my favorite books I read within the last couple of years was Ranged by David Epstein. Um, and the book, I guess, was born out of this debate that Epstein had with Malcolm Gladwell about the 10,000 hours theory. Um, And if you're not familiar, you know, just briefly, Malcolm Gladwell talked about how anyone could spend 10,000 hours intensely trained to become an expert in a domain. Um, The debate was kind of framed by Roger Federer versus uh, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods had been groomed from a young age to be a golf specialist, while Roger Federer was, uh, who Epstein was using in the debate to frame this generalist mindset. Federer was the child of a tennis uh, coach, his mother who had not actually pushed him to play tennis from a young age. He tried many things, explored many disciplines. And when he was like an early teen, which is kind of late in tennis terms to pick it up, he, uh, on his own volition, took an interest in tennis and went for it. So one of the ideas that uh, Epstein uh, suggests is that, you know, um, and it's good parenting advice too, but I think it's good for learning to explore markets. You know, explore the world with breadth and delayed specialization. So don't rush too early to find the one area that really works for you, but explore a lot. Um, And he talked about specifically how what he calls wicked domains are really good ones for generalists. So wicked domains are where the rules are unclear or incomplete. There may not be there may or may not be repetitive patterns, and there may not be obvious uh, that that may not be obvious, and feedback is often delayed and inaccurate or both. So, you know, that's a quote from the book, but I think that's pretty interesting because it sounds a lot like markets, right? You know, a lot of people look for patterns, but some may repeat, some might not. Uh, The rules are clearly incomplete, not talking about the rules of how you buy and sell, but like what works and doesn't work, what creates alpha, what doesn't. So, you know, and he, he talked about how the greatest strength for people is to integrate broadly. And it's somewhat like the Kasparov model where you use like human and machine to beat machine like neither human nor machine is is the best like the combination of the two is the best. So I think this stuff matters a whole lot as we uh progress and more areas are digitized and you know quants take over more pieces of the market. So where can we humans add value? I think this ties into the growth versus value debate too because merely identifying something as statistically cheap that's like Easy, right? You know, it doesn't take much to say, oh, this has a low PE. Um, But the more open ended the question, the more value we can add as generalists. Um, So in investing, there tend to be some sectors where specialists dominate, right? People focus on a given sector or geography, and, you know, generalists could go anywhere. So there have been some situations in my career so far that being a generalist was extremely helpful um, in an area dominated by specialists. Specialists tend to have tunnel vision within their area. They have a network of sources who are similarly tied to that specialization. There tends to be a lot of groupthink in some of these uh, specialist areas, and you know another way this happens: working on a name now, right, right now, that's dominated, uh, that's in a sector dominated by specialists, and basically every one of these um, sell-side analysts look out one to two years, slap a multiple on the business. But what happens when you have you know a, a different kind of entrant into the space, or not not necessarily entrant, but a different player in the space whose opportunity exists over three to five years when people are slapping a multiple on one to two years. They're not really thinking about the bigger picture. So that's an opportunity I'm exploring right now. Um, it means their entire valuation framework is effectively irrelevant. And then, you know, further experience is really valuable as a specialist. You know, we tend to find ourselves spending more time in one particular sector than another as generalists. So eventually, Um, Over time, you can become a pseudo-specialist in a space, but it's helpful to start as a generalist and slowly develop specialized knowledge in a given area. You learn the lexicon of a a space, you learn the skill set of a space, you learn the tools that the analysts use most. And I think there are also evolutionary advantages in markets coming at it as a generalist. So markets tend to change often. What worked in one regime does not necessarily work in another area. Um, So I don't want to be stuck or confined to any boundaries. Um, and then as time goes on, reasoning by analogy, or what uh, Epstein calls lateral thinking, um, which he, like a quote that I like, the reimagining of information in new contexts. It's a highly effective tool when you're going from one area to another. It's, it's exactly Munger's lattice work of mental models being applied throughout uh, our field. Um, and I like to think that there's a bit of an improvisation to it all. Um, we figure out, kind of like music, we figure out which tools to deploy, which areas they work best in. Um, I, think, I think that's a good parallel. Um, so, generalists can, you know, you can be a little more creative. You could think outside the box. You could learn and realize angles to value creation that specialists might not consider. One example in my past that I think is a good one is PayPal, because the typical payment analyst was so focused on take rate and the mechanics of how the company worked within the intru- industry that very few focused on the user experience, the value prop for users and merchants, respectively, and what engagement could look like over time. They were missing a crucial value driver because they were focused far more on the mechanics where their skill set was geared to work. Um, so in, the, in that vein, like specialists tend to approach the world with a more binary outlook. Everything's black or white, good or bad. While generalists, we, we could be a little more nuanced. We could operate with far more a- ambiguity, And, you know, one of our big advantages is being able to synthesize a lot of information from disparate sources. Um, So I think, you know, overall, this is my generalist manifesto. I think it's something that has worked very well for me. Um, And I I get the sense that, you know, all of us are are generalists as we approach the market. Uh, One of the things I think about is it must be so cool to be in John's shoes where, You interview so many amazing managers. You get to hear from so many different people's perspectives. And, you know, at a certain point, you can really synthesize a lot of what you hear. So I I think that's something that, you know, I've been thinking about. If anyone has a great perspective on a variety of strategies, processes, et cetera, I mean, John, you've got the ultimate lens into that. Um, so this is what I wanted to open up for a conversation, you know, how you guys feel about being generalists operating in markets, how you feel approaching different areas where specialists dominate, and just generally like what you think of the worldview.
0: Yeah, I'd say, I'd jump in and say that I love that book too. And Epstein's first book, The Sports Gene, actually laid the foundation for a lot of that. And, um, the Federer example, particularly with the U.S. Open right now, everybody kind of points at the Tiger Woods example of somebody that from age you know, 12 months, I think it was even before that, I think he was eight or nine months old. He's literally just standing for the first time. He's swinging a golf club. Everybody kind of takes that tiger mom, no pun intended mentality and, and applies it to a lot of things. But to your point, it really depends on the environment, you know, wicked or, or kind environments golf, certainly the latter, um, in many regards, and it's just suboptimal. And you could argue that led to a lot of his injuries and, and some of the burnout issues that, that he's had. So you're right. I think the parenting implications are enormous. And I don't know about you guys, but I've heard, I don't know, dozens of times, at least over the past five to seven years that, um, the generalist model of investing was dead and that I would never be successful never raise money in a generalist model because everything was specialized. And that, I mean, this was coming almost entirely from the allocator community that, um, you know, these hyper-specialized funds, um, were the only way that anything was ever going to get done, and I was often told that I needed to specialize in, you know, financials or something like that. And and my response was always, look, that's great. I've had success in that area. It, it's somewhat broad, but what happens when you inevitably get to that three to five year period where that's not an attractive sector to be deploying capital? Um, it just seemed arbitrary and counterproductive and, and just kind of this narrow check the box mentality that made absolutely no sense to me. So I wonder if you guys have come across that and what your response has been.
2: Yeah, I've definitely heard that quite a bit. You know, I think a lot of people tend to view the world in general as pursuing and, and reaching more towards specialization. But I think, you know, a lot of areas would benefit from uh, giving generalists more opportunity. Like obviously Um, skill sets and areas have evolved to the point where certain spaces do require a degree of specialization. Um, I don't want to go to a radiologist to drill my tooth and and give me a filling, but I think investment, you know, given how uh, it is a wicked environment, I I truly think uh, being a generalist has, it's a helping hand. There are angles and Perspectives that we could apply uh, and frameworks that we could move from one area to the next, and you know why would you want to? Like like you said, with with financials, like areas come in and out of favor. So the second you confine yourself to one, I mean, obviously strategies similarly come in and out of favor. But once you confine yourself to one sector, fully fluent in the lexicon and uh, your network of people that you speak to. Uh, both operators and other investors is all in one area. You're definitely pigeonholed and you can't really get out of that when, when, for whatever reason, uh, whether it be the area is disrupted. Like, can you imagine being, I I spoke to an auto analyst like uh, eight years ago, the guy, you know, he felt that he once was in an exciting space that, that, you know, um, wasn't too fun for him at the time. And he's like, I wish I could do something different, but everyone knows me as this. And you become like a man with hammer, Uh, sort of, so yeah, I I strongly believe that that's the wrong way to approach things. And I understand that from an institutional allocator's perspective, you want to check certain boxes and you want to cover certain bases. And, you know, um, it's hard to think about what your exposures are when you have a field of generalists working, you might end up crowded in one factor. Um, But, you know, that's one of the challenges that they have to figure out on their own. I do think there's there's a huge role to play for generalists who are applying, like, You know their lattice work of mental models and 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 thinking broadly.
3: I'll add a few. Hit me over the
0: head going into the financial crisis too. Sorry, Chris. Um, You know the concept of this domain expertise and circle of confidence gets understandably gets a lot of run, and it's very very important. And you have to know exactly where you're clueless. But I'll never forget when I was trying to figure out the industry. You know, in two thousand seven. And I would talk to all these experts in both housing and in banks and insurance companies. And these were people that have been 10, 20, 30 years in the business, and they were situationally blind because they said, no, no, you don't understand. Housing prices have never declined on a on a sustained, you know, multi-regional basis. And no, you don't understand. Counterparties have never failed. And and it was just this, you know, that's how things are done, kind of mentality that really drove them over the cliff. And, you know, without the you know, open mindset of someone that's trying to learn and, and has more of a generalist approach, you would have, you would have fallen into that camp as well.
3: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree Go more ahead, on that, you know, especially in, in real estate in the 05, 06, 07, the, the folks were blind. You know, I talked about a little bit about the pharmaceutical industry last week and how at a point you know, I kind of realized my circle of competence was way too narrow to really understand at a granular level, what was going on in clinical trials. But I think a lot of the success that I I probably had investing in companies like Shearing Plow and Merck and you know Mylan Labs, for example, in the generic space, um, they had a lot more to do with, with just being able to step back and you know approaching from a, a generalist standpoint, albeit you know, with a, a good understanding of how different industries interplayed with each other. You know, and generics, for example, I mean it didn't take a lot to understand that the piece of, the, a piece of legislation Hatch-Waxman had passed in 1984, and that the generic drug manufacturers would would gobble up an enormous amount of market share by units against branded pharma, uh, you know, over a period of years as as patents, you know, started hitting expiration. There was very little advertising for drugs in the over-the-counter market. I mean, I remember in in the early 80s, mid 80s. You know, something like ten percent of all prescriptions that were written were written for generics. And you know, fast forward twenty years, and that number had ballooned to eighty-five or ninety percent. And you know, you you listen to the Wall Street folks that really did drill down on on who was having success in their pipelines and with R and D. And I think you know, kind of missing the forest for the trees, being able to step back to the generalist. I, I I have no reference point as a specialist. My entire career has been approached from a generalist standpoint. I think it's been helpful. I think that's a good example. I think, you know, the point where being a generalist resonated with me was in my mid 20s, let's say, and maybe Outliers had just come out. And that book had a lot of impact on me, starting with the Canadian hockey team, the example of Bill Gates and the number of coding hours that his mother and parents were able to kind of line up for him. Just just the number of hours that it takes to be an expert, plus the luck that it takes to you know be born in the right month and be picked up for a youth hockey program in Canada or here in the United States. There's a personal example with my daughter when USA Volleyball went to a two-year rolling window and they were going to run their national pre-development team in two years of age groups instead of one. And so if you were a kid born at the front end of that two-year window and you were really tall and you were a front row player, you were picked up because you 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 know your your physical stature dominated over other kids. But, but going back to my point, though, I remember you know early in my mid twenties, let's say, you know I was just starting to try to figure out how things fit together, and being able to compare an insurance company to a drug company to a retailer, I wasn't fully connecting the dots. And I don't know at what point I finally stepped back and said, well, you know, my mind went to trying to figure out how the the, the global Macro picture worked out on a relational sense. And at the point where I understood that the United States was, you know, roughly 25% of global GDP, but only 5% of the population, how big we were relative to the global whole, industry by industry, how they fit together, you know, by the late 90s when tech started to become a disproportionate percentage of the overall uh, stock market began to get uncomfortable. And so you know, at the point where the macro made sense on a relational standpoint, I found my ability to then take an industry and the margin structure for a business and how the balance sheet interacted with the income statement, with the cash flow statement, everything started to make sense on a size basis. And when you'd see an outlier in terms of a different margin structure versus a peer, you had to go back and ask why. And, you know, I, I see too many of the really good sell side folks that I know that drill so deep into the minutiae that I think they really struggle with, with being able to make, you know, a good portfolio management decision. And on that, you know, there was a great podcast. I think, you know, everything that Columbia Business School does is outstanding. I have a huge degree of affection for for Bruce Greenwald and the folks there. But he, he did a podcast on their great podcast series. I mean, it, may, it may have been late last year. And just a brilliant discussion. But and I, th- I think it was this podcast. I remember him saying that the world is becoming so specialized that he thought that within not too long, the roles of portfolio manager and analyst needed to be separated. And that struck me as just, in my mind, completely wrong. Because to me, if you don't fully understand the business at a granular level, albeit as a generalist, you really can't get a feel for valuation and you can't really get a feel for how to trade a position within a portfolio, how to construct a portfolio, only with a deep understanding of each business as a component in a portfolio. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thankful I've had a, a approach as a generalist. I can't imagine doing it the other way, but again, I don't have a, a great reference point, but you know, I'm 100% with you guys. I think it's a huge advantage to have kind of that view from 40,000 feet, but then also to be able to do a lot of work from a bottom-up standpoint and, and drill down and, and try to become as much of a specialist with the businesses that you own. But having reference points outside of your specialty, to me, is immensely useful.
1: I think, Elliot, the point you make about um, you know computers really taking over a lot of uh, the areas of the investment landscape uh, these days uh, is a great one because it kind of steers us toward where we as generalists, let's say as as humans, can add value. And it's not, as you said, in those um, things that screen very easily like PEs or price-to-book multiples. And um, it also reminds me of uh, something that John Burbank uh, once said in an MOI interview, which is that uh, what has never happened before is likely the most mispriced thing out there. And if you think about that in the context of, um, you know, computerization, you're going to realize that a computer isn't going to really price something that has never happened before. And, and similarly, you know, sector specialists may not price it either, as Phil just said when, you know, the housing bubble was uh, happening and so forth. Um, so I, I think that's a great example uh, uh, where generalists, can outperform in a big way. And, uh, you know, we may be coming up the next few years might be years where we might see some things that have never happened before, you know, as we've done this year. And then finally, um, I think George Soros is also an instructive example in terms of a generalist really succeeding in a big way. You know, he basically started with thinking about philosophy and how that relates to the world and epistemology and things like that. And then applying that to the markets and basically always running experiments uh, in markets, which I think um, we as generalists can do to basically test uh, our assumptions. So those would be my uh, observations.
0: John, I'm curious, do you have any examples of investors that are truly exceptional or that you consider exceptional and have good records that limit themselves in that way. And again, I don't mean like, you know, strictly defining your area of competence, because I think that's absolutely crucial. Again, I'm referring more to this kind of artificial and narrow constraint where I only invest in this kind of artificially defined area. Are you aware of any investors that are really good that do it that way? Or is pretty much everybody at least functionally a generalist?
1: No, I do. I do think there are investors who do that, uh, who can do that very well. And uh, usually if the sector is broadly defined, uh, you're going to always find opportunities. Uh, The two guys that come to mind just off the top of my head are uh, Will Thompson and uh, Chip, uh, his partner, um, who invest in real assets. And uh, they develop really deep expertise in various areas, but as you can imagine, uh, when you talk when you're talking real assets, is it's broad enough that you can always uh, right. find uh, opportunities. Um, you know, probably can think of some uh, investors who focus, let's say, on re- real estate or REITs uh, that have done really well. But they kind of to do really well, like a Sam Zell, you had to kind of time the market uh, in a way. And and take money off the table when, uh, you know, the multiples went through the roof.
2: Yeah, I know a couple of people in like the energy and industrials area where they could add unique value and they could actually try to build their book in a way with like really high gross, low net, and lever their unique insights. Um, there are certain sectors that seem to lend themselves better to specialization than others. But, you know, in terms of being a generalist, it's pretty nice to be able to hop around and learn a little bit of each area. And then you could reason by analogy, both from drawing on your past experiences and say like, oh, this this one thing I'm working on is a lot like that from the past. Or you could read history and you could find interesting examples that are like relevant today and that apply today. Obviously you could do that like within a sector. Um, so, you know, you, you're you not confined to to Exactly what you're doing. You, you could read broadly, but um, I think that sort of general pursuit of wisdom and building uh, like a compounding base of knowledge that you could apply in different areas, you could also constantly broaden your circle of competence and both in, in two ways, right? We can could, we could move like horizontally and vert- vertically. Um, and I think that's part of recognizing that, you know, by and large, I mean, you could, you could have a pretty long career in this industry in the grand scheme of things, I consider myself pretty young uh, still, uh, thankfully. Um, You know, and thinking out for many years, hoping that um, some of the time I spend on some of these little areas and developing a little extra, like pushing myself and whether it be vertically or horizontally, that somewhere down the line, it may not be something I act on today for my portfolio, but somewhere down the line, it's something that'll be, you know, incredibly valuable to me. And I don't know how I'll deploy it Uh, but I will. So it kind of rewards a little more that general pursuit of information. Um, There's certainly one area that I think definitely lends itself to a degree of specialization is uh, biotechnology, right? There are highly technical conference calls, people who understand, I mean, the FDA process is pretty accessible, but understand like how certain molecules work definitely seem to have an advantage. There's some specialists there that are truly, truly phenomenal. um, And I think, you know, it's a space that a lot of generalists tend to stay away from for various reasons. But, uh, you know, those are a couple things that come to mind. But in general, I think all of us, like when it, as fundamental analysts, we have to start with like universal principles too. So like always have to understand the unit economics of a business. We have to know what the right unit is and we have to know like where each dollar of revenue gets allocated to and why and what ends up as free cash flow that we as shareholders could benefit from. Um, so there's certain fundamental principles that we we always know, but you know, kind of pursue this worldly wisdom to hop around and and figure out things. And I think it's interesting too to be able to, you know, even it, within our competence, say like, oh, you know, British small caps are especially uh, beaten down right now. Let me see if there's anything interesting over there, and start doing some extra work, uh, kind of sifting through the rubble and figuring out if there's something that. Fits and what we look for, um, so there's so many different angles to explore as a generalist. And I
0: know yeah, you're, the biotech thing is a good example. I mean, I think we probably all could point to one or two firms, and in, in general that that you know maybe they only buy you know uh, companies who had a major drug fail at phase two or phase three trial, and the stock gets obliterated. And then it you know inevitably, or in many cases, where they're able to find opportunities, it's not nearly that bad. And so again, it's somewhat contradictory. I'm not dismissive at all of that kind of domain expertise, because I think there it's really people and investors and firms that are set up to take advantage of that unique opportunity. It's, it's somewhat semantics. I'm referring more to where people are kind of artificially drawing a line around what they will and won't look at rather than something that actually requires inherently that domain expertise. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting debate.
3: Yeah, it's, it's places where you have very high degrees of technical complexity, right? So biotech's great example. You know, there are some really good mining investors that I, I don't have near the the geological expertise to to troll around in junior Canadian miners. But you know, when you really get into a, a pre production piece of land and you know, there are nuances and ore grades and Technical complexity, you know, I think folks that have, that have a very deep technical background would have an advantage when you get outside of the seniors. You know, I think about the energy investments that we've made over the years, and you know, the folks in the industry that are really good. i you know, the, the guy I admire the most in energy is Christian Siam, who's chairman of Sub C Seven, which we've owned for a number of years, and meaningfully here in the last couple three years, as energy has gotten so beat up, you know, he's just a very good operator. Uh, who I would put in an investor category, even though he, he chairs a big public company. He's been a CEO. Uh, he's been inside of some big energy businesses. And, you know, I think, I think with, a, with a technical expertise about equipment that's viable and, and an understanding of the cycle, you know, a guy like that is, is really just a rock star. And, you know, I could spend an entire career and, and you know, he'd forget more in the five minutes than, than I could learn in a lifetime. About various nuances of the energy energy world, so i i i absolutely concur that uh, very complex businesses and industries, especially when they're cyclical, require an, an expertise that we as generalists would will, will never get to
1: and one argument that i've uh, also heard articulated quite a bit and it I do think it has some validity is the geographical argument let's say with somebody based in India who says I'm going to invest just in the Indian equity market. And because I'm here, I know the language. I know how business is done. I can contact these management teams. I have an edge over someone sitting in New York. Uh, I think similar argument could be made for, let's say, investing in Japan. If you're on the ground, you can actually uh, talk to these companies. You may have an edge. Um, we also know that in some countries, uh, companies may publish their uh, financials or or their reports in the local language. Um, Obviously, with Google Translate, that's no longer as big of a deal. Uh, But there might be some geographies where I do think if you focus, um, you know, you could make the argument that you have an edge. And then within those geographies, those investors do tend to be generalists um, within that. So, that's, that's another um, observation, I think, and another nuance. So I think uh, we'll move on to our second topic uh, of today. Chris, I'll turn it to you for uh, some thoughts on uh, employee options and uh, repurchases. Yeah, good.
3: Thanks, John. So we had taken some time in the last couple of weeks and just did a, a mid-year, if you will, update on an area... That we we keep an eye on pretty closely, and that's share issuance and and share repurchases. I spent a fair amount of my client letter this year on the subject. In fact, the theme of the my letter, "Money for Nothing," um, you know, kind of did a parallel between um, kind of the the, the free uh, issuance of company stock to insiders and the degree of dilution that really is so painfully expensive to shareholders. So here at midyear, I mean. It, you know, you're seeing more and more businesses as the COVID downturn and the economic downturn got underway. You've seen a lot of suspensions of share repurchase activity, and I, you know, that that goes to me to kind of the exact opposite thinking that you'd want to see. You know, I a share repurchase done well is done at an undervalued price relative to an intrinsic value, and you know what you what you've tended to see over the years are larger share repurchases as stocks get more and more expensive you know during economic booms when profitability is high you know companies have you know surplus free cash and invariably it winds up investing in company shares and investing regardless of the value of the underlying shares when times get really lean go back to the 0809 downturn even go back to the kind of 0102 recession repurchase activity falls off the cliff you know you have businesses that need capital. the banks, for example, in two thousand and eight early o nine were massive net issuers of new shares. The dilution in places like city were uh, so punitive that the original shareholders were effectively wiped out, even though you didn't have a technical restructuring. so you know here we are in a downturn and I thought it'd be interesting to kind of see who was who was shrinking the 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 repos and you know, I think what's lost on everybody is the degree of dilution that comes on the front end and the absolute number of shares. And I spent some time in my letter this year kind of going through the history of stock options and repurchases, and you know going all the way back to the Great Depression, Dow Jones had fallen 89 percent. You were in the middle of a depression. Very few companies were generating a profit. G.E., for example, was you know trading for less than the cash in the business. They weren't making any money. And to the extent any companies tried to buy back the stock because they had a mountain of cash on the balance sheet, it was generally frowned upon and it was hinted even at manipulation. And along came the, the, the 34 Act, which, you know, really did to a degree discourage repurchases. So you got through the 30s and 40s and 50s and there was very little repurchase activity. Companies at that point hadn't dreamt up the executive stock option. So you just had very little re- rebuys and issuance of shares. 1982, there was an SEC regulation that effectively eliminated uh, and and created a safe harbor for repurchasing. I mean, you go back in the 60s, and in the early 60s, a lot of stocks were still cheap. You know, I wrote about Henry Singleton at Teledyne, and you know, we all know his background and story. Um, You know, in the in the 60s and early 70s, uh, when Teledyne traded at a very rich multiple, you know, you know, Mr. Singleton bought. Acquired something like 75 or 100 companies, and he was using his stock as currency in the deals, at 50 and 60 and 70 times earnings. And when the the the, the bear market, you know, following the nifty 50 unfolded, and you know we took the markets down by 50 percent, the median stock down by 60 or 70. You know, Singleton flipped the switch and went into repurchase mode, and over the course of a couple, three, four years bought back 90% of the company in an average of something like 10 times earnings well he was a he was a one off and just very unique in that area in the 80s you, 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 the, so I, as i mentioned with this sec safe harbor the, there became an allowance to repurchase shares but you just had the experience of the 17 year bear market and nobody wanted to buy a stock because they didn't think they were very attractive and that included company managements so it really took the 90s and you know the, the bull market, which had really launched in, in the fall of 81, once stocks started going up into the 90s, and you started getting more and more option grants to key executives. Uh, then you know the tech bubble really got underway, and issuance of shares there were off the charts. And a lot of those businesses were not unlike some of these you know tech startups today. They they did not have a lot of capital on the balance sheet. Some didn't have revenues and so using your stock as currency for deals uh, was was done frequently and, and the giveaways to company managements was off the charts i mean microsoft after they'd gone public in the mid 80s they were they were giving away 4 or 5 6% of their company per year every year you know buying back the shares and not even offsetting the dilution i think you know that you know by the late 90s microsoft despite spending you know almost 100% of their profits buying back stock the share count had grown by something like forty percent since the IPO, and none of that was shares that were issued in acquisitions. So there was a clamoring in, in the late in the late nineties, um, getting into the two thousand peak, for an accounting mandate that stock option grants be expensed. You know, they were just not expensed, and you know Silicon Valley would argue that it was not expensed. Warren Buffett would argue to the contrary. Well. If If there's value being imparted to a CEO and there's monetary value to it, how could it not be an expense? So in 1995, uh, we had FAS 123, which really didn't do much except give companies the option of either expensing a stock stock option or making a footnote disclosure. Well, guess what? I mean, there were only one or two companies that actually chose the expense path. That all changed when they revised 123 and 04, and over a period of years, phased in the mandatory expensing of stock options. And so at that point, over a couple three, four year period of time, what you saw was companies giving away far fewer stock options because now it was an income statement item. And, you know, you'd had the 2000 to 02 bear market, you had the NASDAQ drop by 80%. And so a lot of the options that company executives were given were underwater. Uh, you had a, a degree of repricings, which I always found unconscionable. Uh, You had, uh, you know, Black-Schultz, if you think about how options are valued, volatility and interest rates into the mix. And to me, if, you know, on average, if if you give a a stock option at 10 bucks a share, the option cost under Black-Schultz on a normal kind of five-year vesting schedule would have been been about a third of the face value or the strike price. Um, So if a stock then drops by a third, by two thirds, let's say, And you give away a like number of options. Well, those to me are a lot more expensive because if you're looking at the business on an intrinsic value basis, if there's no change in the intrinsic value, now you're giving away shares at two thirds of the price at which you were giving them away in in the earlier period. And generally, in those points, the number of shares that were given away were greater. So, in any event, we've seen in the last 15 years a far greater preponderance of restricted share issuances, which are an expense item, but there's no strike price, which means that on a stock option, companies are collecting cash up front. You guys know this um, at the exercise price. So if you're given us if you're given an option grant, be it non-qualified or an incentive stock option it's say 50 bucks a share, of stock trade at 90 bucks a share, you exercise the option, you pay the company $50 in cash for the strike price. You pocket the $50 or $40 difference as gain, the company can actually take a deduction in one of those cases. Uh, for the tax liability, uh, for withholding. But under an RSU, under a restricted share or a performance share, where there are performance hurdles that go with the vesting schedule, you know, that $50 grant is an expense. And so because, because you didn't have the, the, the cost of the option and, and the potential for loss, it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar expense. And so the numbers started off low, but in the last 10 years, they've just ballooned back up to the point where, and here's where it gets important. You still have about one and a half percent of shares being given away every year to executives and employees of public companies. And we all focus on repurchases, which are now running, or at least through a year and 19, we're running at about two and a half percent of the market cap of businesses. And so what you really had was a one percent shrink in the overall share count. You look at the divisor on the S&P 500, it's only shrunk by one percent but we're spending 2.5%. Well, the reality is that 1.5% is dilution. And if you take the aggregate of the S&P 500, which is only growing its sales at 3% a year, option compensation is prohibitively expensive. And you know, I cringe when I hear things like shareholder yield that, were, that combine a dividend yield with what you'd look at as a repurchase yield. And it's the number of dollars that are being spent to give away shares. Well, you know, if the dividend yield has been 2% and stocks are trading at 20 times earnings, that makes the repurchase yield 3%. That's crazy because if companies are spending 50% of their profits, which is what they've averaged for the last 10 years to buy back their shares, the yield is far lower. You know, the, you know, between dividends and, and, and repurchases, we're spending on average 90 to 100% of company profit. Those profits, to the extent they're, they're paid you know, as dividends, you're getting that capital. But in the majority of cases, other than the stock price going up for some period of time, there's really no investment being made for the benefit of the shareholder. This is really a transfer of wealth from the, the, the insiders of businesses away from the shareholder. So and I find it unconscionable. And so it's just interesting. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll open it up to you guys for your thoughts. But um, you know, I took the big five tech companies here and it's really interesting in that the, the, the dollar volume of stock options have gone down. You know, We were running on the order of $750 billion a year which, as I say, is uh, you know, on the order of 60% of net income for the overall S&P 500. Um, you know, the, the, the big five, which is really just Apple and Microsoft, you've got Google now buying back some shares. Amazon has not bought back shares, really. Facebook, just in the last couple of years, started buying back. But you know those big five, which are 22%, 23% of the index, we're, we're, were buying back about 16% of the outstanding uh, repurchase volume of the index. Getting into the first quarter, they bought back uh, uh, $35 billion out of 197 We just ran these numbers a few days ago. And then in the the second quarter, once the COVID was underway, the repurchases at at the Big Five really didn't fall off off much, still running $30 billion. Well, on a quarterly basis, we dropped from almost $200 billion down to under $100 billion for the S&P. So now the Big Five spending 35% of the repurchase volume. It just goes to, it, 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 it tells us that outside of a handful of very big businesses that have been buying back their shares, you know, there's a, just an enormous transfer of wealth from businesses uh, you know, pervasively throughout the index, where to me, shareholders are being robbed. And you know, I, I'll make a side point and then I'll stop. Apple and Microsoft have done a monumentally good job, if you look at it, with their share purchases. Apple wasn't buying anything back until 2013. They didn't retire a share. You know, they were issuing on the order of one to one and a half percent of their shares per year. So there was dilution every year, which, you know, to me was proper. They were investing in the business. And then when they really got profitable, starting in 13, they started buying back an enormous amount of the shares. Since 13, they have bought back a third of the stock in 17, 18 and 19, you know, 19 alone, they spent $66 billion, which was more than their net income and just enormous repurchases at what seemed to be good prices. It'll be interesting there to see the price at which they're buying back. Microsoft was a very heavy buyer in kind of the 08 to 2012 period when the stock traded at 10 times earnings. So they were buying back 4 and 4.5 and, and 5% of their outstanding shares per year. And since then, they've probably averaged 2 to 3% of their market cap per year, uh, which you know just slightly more than of offset The shrinkage from issuance of shares to the employees. So, you know, you take those two businesses out, though, sequentially, and Apple's big block of repurchases more recently, next to Microsoft's in the prior five year iteration, they did a marvelous job. And outside of those two, which are so distortive to the aggregate, again, I go back to you, there's to me an enormous transfer of wealth underway. And if you own the index of a 3% top line growth, you really, the average investor has no idea the degree to which they're being robbed by transfer of capital. So, uh, open it to the floor.
2: Yeah, so that's all really interesting and something you know I've thought about quite a bit too. Um, I think there's this like illusion that companies are trying to pass on to some shareholders to the extent that they you know dilute with stock comp and repurchase to merely replace it. Um, and I've always wondered if there's like just a better way, a better paradigm altogether, because I understand how you want employees to be incentivized to work hard. You want them to take part in success alongside stockholders, but maybe if they instead were to issue or not issue, wrong word, but to approach uh, stock comp as we will subsidize you to outright purchase stock. If you so choose, to a certain degree, instead of just giving that amount of stock, it could be a little better, and the choice would be more proactive, and and employees would have to opt in as opposed to be granted. That's something I think about a lot. And then um, the other side of that too is I tend to just really not like when companies methodically purchase X dollars of shares per year. Um, I try to seek out those companies who are like very lumpy and uh, esoteric in their repurchase behavior where they look for uh, opportunities to like truly step in, like you were referencing with Microsoft, having had a degree of aggression um, when they were 10 to 12 times earnings. Like That's exactly what you want to see. Like A company should have a framework for how they think about what their own shares are worth um, and have an idea of where they'd be willing to actually you know, play ball where they think it's appropriate to be stepping in instead of just do it uh, either as a dilution offset or as, you know, this kind of like, we have a shareholder yield, yada, yada, yada. Like, you know, at that point, you know, think about value and think about how you want to deploy it. That's part of the job there. Um, So those are two things that I'd add alongside that. And, you know, I think it's definitely something really important um, that all of us need to think about. Uh, And one counterpoint, there's an interesting study by uh, empirical, I think it was, on valuation, uh, sorry, on, on um, whether you should or should not expense uh, stock comp in approaching valuation. And they, uh, I, I, I'm going to butcher exactly how it played out. But effectively, um, viewing non-GAAP and, and, and expensing stock comp had very little impact in the forward returns. Uh, for shareholders. So that's something interesting to think about. I was surprised by that and they showed it nicely. Um, And I'm, you know, not really explaining it very clearly, but that's something that I think, you know, I I think about like, how should I approach it in certain cases? Um, And I think, you know, to an extent that matters more when the company's an acquisition target and there's something strategic about them, you know, you think about how a new owner could could take that earnings yield and make it their own. Uh, but to, to a certain degree, like all these companies that you've mentioned, the big five, like there's no way any of them are ever being acquired. So that's kind of irrelevant. So those are a couple of my thoughts. I'll leave it to you guys to keep going.
3: Well, there are, some, yeah, there are a bunch a ton- of nuances. To... Oh, go ahead, Phil.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I don't have a ton to add, but I mean, the one thing that jumped out to me, I just tried to find the number. I think it was in the Michael Mobison paper earlier this summer about uh, private equity and public to private Shifts, which is a fantastic paper in its own right, highly recommend it um, for all sorts of different reasons. I couldn't find it quickly. If I can find it later, we can probably link to it in the notes. But as I recall, I I think it was him. You know, the massive, massive amount of share-based compensation that's really taken off in the past few years is a really meaningful number in the context of all sorts of things, particularly in the in the context of margins and how people are valuing these companies because it's a very material expense. I mean, how you pay your employees is a very important number for just about any business on the planet. And when it tends to be in, or or heavily weighted towards share issuance, and then you just turn around and buy back a lot of those shares with after tax free cash flow, you know, that's that's an interesting practice to put it uh, a little lightly. And uh, it's been huge dollars over the past five and 10 and 20 years. And uh, I'm not so sure how well that'll work for the next 20
3: years, but I guess we'll find out. It's a shame when, when the policy is simply to offset the dilution by repurchasing shares, then there's just a disregard for the price that you pay. You know, there are so many capital levers that you can pull, you make acquisitions, you can buy back shares, you can issue shares, you can buy back debt, you can issue debt, you can spend on R&D, you can spend on CapEx. And what you're getting is with increasingly large amounts of, of free cash profit, uh, which is discretionary in its use, going to retire shares at, at what would have been increasingly higher and higher prices. It really is just a destruction of capital. You know, Elliot, you mentioned, you know, kind of a preference for having CEOs and managers dig into their pockets. You know, if you go back to the '70s and '80s and even early '90s, and you still see cases of it. Oftentimes, there are policies in place where a newly hired CEO or executive team is 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 required to own a certain number of shares outstanding and. You know, in the cases where you've got to dig into your pocket or the company makes you a loan or they withhold a portion of your cash and your bonus cash compensation uh, to compel you uh, to purchase shares with your own money, I think the motivation absolutely changes. When you're the CEO of a public company and you're on the job for four years and 10% of your compensation comes from cash, and the remainder comes from RSUs and PRSUs and stock options. You have every motivation to drive the price of the stock up in the short term, regardless of whether you have better opportunity sets for capital deployment throughout the rest of the empire. It, to me, it just becomes a, a, a real misallocation of capital. And you know, I think at the end of the day. It's not made easy to figure out the degree to which the dilution takes place because you know if you spend enough money, you can shrink your share count, you can grow the earnings per share, and that all looks great. And you can drill through to the cash flow statement, like I say. But again, you know, you can see the cash cash spent on repurchasing shares, and you can see the cash received from the issuance of shares. And again, that that cash received is only coming in from stock options, which now represent a small a far smaller proportion of the shareholder compensation as an, as as compensation as shares to to executives, you know, the preponderance are RSUs, which again, require no cash in. And the only way to figure out the degree to which you're being diluted is to go into the footnotes of the 10 K. Some companies do talk about share issuance during a quarter in the queue, but you always see it in the K, but you've got to get into the footnotes and add up and you've got to get into the proxy statement and add up the number of option shares that were granted and the number of RSUs that were granted and the number of P- P- PRSUs that were granted. And it's not an easy exercise. And having done that math, it's, you know, the, the numbers for, for 2020 have not dropped off on issuance as far as we can tell. Again, the repurchases are down, but you know, that, that dilution factor is running at the rate of one and a half percent. And at some companies you have to do this on a company by company basis. At some companies it's way, 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 way higher. I mean, Way higher. Goldman Sachs has had years where they've given away ten percent of their shares per year, and then they spend an offsetting, you know, you know, majority of profit buying back the stock. It's uh, uh, needed on a case by case basis, and it's it's a subject that's underappreciated. And I think when you get into the political sphere, everybody wants to jump on, you know, stock repurchases as being the evil. When you're really ought to focus on the degree of dilution going out the front the front end, and it's really the giveaway to companies and and. The the, the skewing of proper you know incentive motivations and structure it's just it's a big issue that's way too underappreciated.
1: Chris, I'm curious how you would uh, define shareholder yield uh, because this this notion has gained traction it seems especially also among value investors uh, to look at dividend yield plus buyback yield and then to be consistent would you basically subtract um let's say the stock comp dilution offset yield or um how would you think about this in in the right way
3: well the way it's conventionally done as i've seen it done by your street analysts you simply take your your dollars spent on dividends your dollars spent repurchasing shares and often on a gross basis not on a net basis of you know the nominal amount that's still coming in Uh, Companies are being paid last year. They were paid, you know, like 83 billion dollars and 100 billion dollars the prior year, which is the cash in from the executives on the exercise of options. But it's simply the dollars for dividends, dollars for repos, and again, it, it really the easiest way to look at that, John, is if you take the earnings yield, if you're if you're spending exactly 100% of your profits buying back your shares and your dividend yield is two and your stock's trading at 20 times earnings, the repurchase yield is three. So it's it, it's just the dollars divided by the stock price. It's just the yield. And there's no factor that people consider for the dilution that comes out on the front yield. They're saying we're spending the money repurchasing shares, but we're ignoring the fact that our share count is really not going down. They're saying the dollar spent rebuying shares in newer for the benefit of the shareholder and they do not. To me, you have to offset the dilution, the shares given away on the front end. And that's where I get to, You know, if you're repurchasing 2.5% of your market cap every year, but you're giving away 1.5% on the front end to your employees and your executives, you're only shrinking your shares outstanding by 1%. And that's then for the benefit of the shareholder. It's not the entire 2.5% of market cap that was spent buying back the shares. And it's again, in a world that's growing very, very slowly, in a world of stock prices that to me on balance are very, very high, it's making it prospectively very difficult for the common shareholder in a diversified portfolio of stocks, say your index owner of the S&P 500, to really make money. It's it's an expense that you know kind of comes off as a management fee that's not a management fee, and it's just paid and it's money gone forever. And it's 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 consuming the vast majority of corporate resources. And even you know take that one step further, the you know the, these repurchases that are running at two and a half percent of market cap broadly for the last ten years, and even for the last twenty years, because you're spending half a profit, and you're spending ninety percent of profit on dividends and repurchases. To the extent you're trying to fund any of your operations, be it your capex, your R and D you know the expansion the, the the differential is coming from the 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 assumption of debt and so debt numbers relative to sales debt numbers relative to profit debt numbers relative to ebitda across the corporate sector are at an all time high and you know it's, it's um, it, to me it's just a to summarize again i'll say it Tom, blue on the face just a massive transfer of wealth from the shareholder to corporate insiders and it is miscalculated when they talk about shareholder yield
1: Great. That's uh, very helpful. Thank you. Let's move on to our third topic of the week. Uh, Phil, I'll turn it to you for uh, your observations on the golden age of fraud.
0: Yeah, thanks, John. And uh, I should probably caveat this by saying that I think that is, as best I can tell, a phrase that was popularized by Jim Chanos on Twitter. It's certainly not mine. And I'm not sure uh which side of the debate i really fall on this which is why i wanted to open it up for everyone's thoughts on the matter i mean i think on the one hand i think what i do uh see and and again uh, part of the problem is there's there's really no hard data around this or at least any that i was able to find in in a brief effort so if anyone has any um i'd be very curious to uh to to hear about it maybe we could get somebody you know like bethy McLean is kind of an expert in this area to opine or weigh in maybe there's data out there i don't know Um, But for people who track kind of frauds for a living, um, anecdotally, I mean, I think it's easy to say, sure, this is a golden age of fraud because you look around and it's so much in the headlines. And I'm certainly somewhat subject to bias. I just read The Billion Dollar Whale, which was, you know, a couple of years ago, written about the uh, Malaysian scandal and Joe Lowe, which, you know, again, I think what stood out to me there was just how brazen it was. I mean, it was a very clearly a fake it till you make it fraud, where you know, it was just kind of go big or go home. And that, that was kind of the stunning part of it. Not that it's not all that stunning. It's certainly not new that there's corruption amongst uh, public officials, not new that there are young strivers out there who are willing to break the rules and trying to get wealthy or get ahead. Um, but then, you know, I started putting that in the context of Wirecard, which is really one of the more stunning frauds, I think, I've ever looked at, just in, in terms of both the sheer audacity of it and how long it was going on and called out by people. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was somewhat similar to the Madoff uh, situation in that you had some pretty well-placed people blowing the whistle on this company for a number of years, and yet it persisted until it finally came tumbling down somewhat recently. Uh, Likewise, you know, the Theranos, it's been a few years now, but Theranos was an interesting one in that, you know, I, I don't know that that really, sort of like Enron, my working thesis is, I don't know that that really began as an outright fraud, I think it was more of a, um, you know, let's window dress this thing. Let's put some lipstick on the pig. Let's fake it till you make it, whatever kind of euphemism you want to, you want to apply there. Um, but I think it, it certainly ended poorly. And then likewise, I mean, just this week in the news, this situation with Nikola, the electronic vehicle hydrogen trucking company, where, um, again, the, the end of that story is, is not even remotely. in yet the jury is very much still out, but, um, you know, it certainly raises questions when you have a company put out a promotional video and raise money on the back of, you know, something, a demonstration about a supposedly working vehicle that's literally titled Nikola 1 in motion. And then you find out on the back of an accusation of a short seller that the that the truck was tied to the, it was towed to the top of the hill and then set loose and neutral to just run down, the, you know, using gravity down the back of this hill. I mean, it's pretty stunning. Um, you know, to say nothing of some of the other issues at Wells Fargo or, um, you know, Turing and Martin Shkreli, even things like the Fire Festival or Varsity Blues that are somewhat outside the, the realm of financial markets, but certainly in the popular imagination loom large and for good reason. So I don't know. I mean, I think my view is probably that these things are somewhat inherently cyclical. They are somewhat tied to both the business cycle and the monetary cycle become more easy to commit. And and there's, you know, uh, more of an, uh, I guess, an incentive to commit them when, when money is loose and things are going well, which might apply to most of the past five or 10 years. So I guess I'm somewhat skeptical that this really is a golden age of fraud. I think fraud's always been with us. Greed and misbehavior has always been with us. So I, I'm not sure I see any clear evidence that we're really in Um, a new era of outright fraud, but I am pretty open to the argument that the fake-it-till-you-make-it culture has really become pervasive, Um, and even if it doesn't quite meet the stricter thresholds of fraud, um, that that is something that has become really endemic, both in in culture at large and in the business world. So I'm curious for what everybody else thinks on this.
2: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic, really interesting conversation. Um, And I wonder about it too. There's definitely something like cyclical about it. Um, But at the same time, one of the things I think about on the other side of that, uh, because I've heard that argument from Chinos, and I was wondering like historically what it's been like, but today we live in an age of instant information and anything is searchable and discoverable. And I'd have to think like the capacity to commit fraud is as great uh, is, is as yeah. like challenging as possible like it's not that easy to just go out there and do some of the things that historically you know people were more vulnerable to but there are other ways that it could happen I mean you see things uh, as simple as like the phishing scams that especially prey on older people through their phones like not digitally native not inherently skeptical enough of how they're being you know reached for communication. Like those sorts of things, like surprisingly, you know, you ask yourself, why does it? Why do people try this? And it's because why? Why do I keep getting these annoying calls? Because it works. They get enough people. It's worth their while to keep doing. Um, but the fraud that I do think is kind of pernicious these days. The, the the fake it till you make it. I've definitely seen in way too many contexts. I've seen it small and large, and it's somewhat frustrating. Like I think there are certain people that glorify that and that incentivize people to work that way. And so that's definitely one kind that I've been like, especially uh, from some of the kinds of companies that, that uh, in the sectors that I look at, you see some companies that you're like, well, this is a little too good to be true. And some of the ways I think I see com- companies doing that is they'll point you to uh, not just fake it till you make it, but they'll point you to like a TAM that's just so phenomenally large and have you like focusing so zooming so far out at the business while they know realistically, there's no way they could really attack, uh, you know, a good portion of that, or at the very least, like uh, the nature of the competition is very different once you get past a certain uh, portion of the TAM. So like, you know, I think communication is pretty open, pretty transparent. Um, we're in an instant information world, uh, but people manipulate uh, some of the ways that, that it does work and some of the ways people tap into that. Um, so that's kind of how, maybe may what I was thinking when you introduced the topic.
0: That
3: was a good well, point. I think no, I this is an awesome topic. Um, I would contend that it's probably no more fraud is no more pervasive now than it's been throughout time. And I would you re- really argue that that you re- to me and, and this is just in you know observation of kind of when I've seen the big fraud pop up. I suppose when you finally get the economic downturn, it makes it harder to perpetuate the fraud or the Ponzi scheme. Um, so you're seeing more today, but you're seeing a weak economy you go back to the uh, the the tech bubble that raged and there was just countless fraud and you had the big ones that were only exposed kind of on the back end Enron and Tyco and HealthSouth um, but World throughout time, yeah WorldCom I mean there were just a ton of them you know it, 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 you, their whole their whole you know Luckin Coffee today you know I think you look at an Alibaba and I scratch my head at the margin structure of the business versus versus the their, their their contemporaries that we'd be more familiar with here, and wonder how do they do that? So there have been clear red flags. Uh, you know, some of the more you look at you look at um, Berkshire. I mean, you'd think a Berkshire Hathaway would be the last place on earth where you'd be susceptible being hoodwinked, and they've got two cases here in the last three or four years, right? you get got the, the yeah. DC solar loss that everybody's familiar with, you know, the guys that were running the tax equity funds uh, and were selling those generators for music festivals and sports events and what have you. and They, they only had a fraction of the number of units actually that they made, and they were pilfering money out of the business to line their pockets. The precision cast parts, you know, Ber- Berkshire's biggest deal right after they closed that deal, they like they'd done for years, you know, it was a roll off. You know, they bought a German business. And turns out the German business that they bought, Schultz. I don't know if you guys saw this thing or followed it. It's it's been a little more covered now recently, but it's been going on for a couple three years. Right after they closed, a whistleblower came out and said, Hey, you guys bought um, uh, you guys bought a fraud. I mean, you know, this business was going bankrupt. They had lines of credit with one of the big German banks that was going to foreclose on them. And so, you know, Berkshire's in doing their due diligence. PCC was in doing due diligence. And these guys were just ginning up fake orders and invoices. And, you know, on a purchase price of, I want to say, you know, 800 billion euros or 900 billion US, you know, the, the there was a lawsuit, which Berkshire won. And, you know, the judges, or arbitration panel, I guess, said, well, this is a no-brainer. I mean, this is clearly a fraud. You guys were hoodwinked. And now to go back for recourse, the three subsidiaries that uh, kind of housed the businesses filed for bankruptcy in Germany. So I'm I'm not even sure where that stands. But I mean, those are, you know, not rounding errors inside of Berkshire. at you know, three hundred plus million dollars and you know, eight hundred million plus dollars. They're they're big deals. Uh, but there, there's there's a, a list of really awesome frauds over time that uh, that, that that are just fun. I mean. You guys, guys would remember Z but one of my best friends in the industry is Kate Welling. When she was at when she was at Barons, she I think she 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 played a large part in uncovering Barry Minkow. You guys know this story? Yeah, this guy had this business that was going to do. I think they were doing like carpet cleaning, and this kid, and I say kid because he was a kid, he was a teenager, out of his I think parents' bedroom was faking a bunch of sales receipts for carpet cleaning amassed enough fake receipts and fake tax returns to take the business public in the mid 1980s. And I don't know, got up to a market cap of several hundred million dollars. And with the proceeds of the IPO bought a big office, office complex in Southern California. and The entire thing was a total fraud. Z, 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 Z best, Z best. And watching uh, hockey growing up, um, you know, you, you're going to love this, but I used to love watching the Islanders and back when they were winning all their Stanley Cups. And so we had a satellite dish and watched WORTV and had the Islanders on. And you guys remember, I don't know if you're too young to remember Crazy Eddie? But of course
2: not. I Crazy remember. Eddie
3: was running. You remember Crazy Eddie? Yeah. I mean, his prices were insane. Well, here's a guy running this business and this thing went on for 20 or 30 years. These guys, when they were private, were, were skimming sales out of the cash register. They were pay- paying employees in cash. so They didn't have to pay any payroll taxes. They were even faking insurance claims. And then the, they took it public. And when they went public, you know, they, the, the family owned the majority of the shares, this crazy Eddie guy and his family. So they wanted to make it look good. So these guys actually put cash back into the business. That they had pilfered out. They took it out of these secret accounts. They pulled it out of safe deposit boxes. They were trying to make the revenues and the income look better than it was. And you know, they did this thing for a long time. And ultimately, cracked down on him. And he left the country. I remember they found him. I think they found him in Israel. So, I would argue with Chanos and say, you know, over the duration of my career and even looking at at you know the capital markets over time, BRIEX, You guys remember BRIEX? We talked about it on, on the gold a few weeks ago gold mining company. They were supposed to have the biggest mine in the world in Indonesia. And the whole thing was a total fraud. And I remember the news story was the there, there was a helicopter flight leaving the mine and it was either the CFO or the chief geologist get, fell out of the helicopter, you know, wink, wink. And turns out there was absolutely nothing in the ground. So I, I think there's a ton of fraud throughout time and it probably gets exposed during times of economic weakness. But it's a fun, it's a, to me, it's always been a fun subject to watch and observe. But people can be as duped into some of these things as they are. It's, it's pretty remarkable.
1: I'm wondering what your guys' thoughts are on fraud in an age of capital light business and whether that plays a role. Uh, it seems like today you can create huge value in the marketplace, and I'm talking about the stock market. Uh, for a business that basically has no tangible assets. So, you know, presumably anyone can pretend to have that kind of business, whereas it would seem in the past where, you know, business values were a little bit more based on tangible assets, it might have been harder to kind of put together some real assets. Um, And, you know, maybe this notion that Phil mentioned of fake it till you make it it seems like the the ground for fake it till you make it might be more fruitful uh, today than it was in the past.
2: Yeah, I think that's a lot harder in like uh, a consumer-facing capital light business, especially with like all data where you could track credit card spend and get pretty good reads on, you know, maybe not to the penny, but at least roughly speaking how large a business is uh, on the revenue side of things. But, you know, on B2B, I think that's part of why it, it, it kind of worked for Wirecard so long. You know, they have a complex, uh, more complex business. Their balance sheet was a little uh, sloppier than a straight up B2C would be. Uh, and, um, you know, I so I don't know if it's capital light or not, but like when you work behind the scenes, it's a little easier, it seems, or at least there's a little more opportunity to pull it off. Like it would be really hard um, for someone with with like a consumer-facing business, I think. Um, and I just want to add, Chris, I hope you're watching the Islanders tonight because it's a big game for us. Uh, not, not, not to get too far off, but uh, I got that on my mind. But yeah, overall, you know, I, th- I think there is something to be said about how um, the kinds of companies that uh, we've seen do it recently aren't really um, necessarily capital-light at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, John, it's a great point, and I think this is why the debate's kind of open. Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that come into it, but I think fraud and financial malfeasance kind of adapts to whatever technology is out there. And you know, I think what remains the same, or roughly the same, same and static over the years, is human behavior and and psychology. So that's why I think I probably uh, fall on the, the side of camp that this is just you know somewhat typical and that the golden age of fraud is, is really more just the normal ups and downs of, of unfortunate sides of human behavior. But, I you know, like Jim Chan has been teaching this, his course on uh, the financial history of fraud at Yale for many years. And, you know, if that's his opinion, I don't think it should be dismissed. I mean, he would probably have a lot more data and evidence behind his argument than I might. So again, I do find it, though, I mean, I think the one thing that has become really clear, is that whether it's technology enabled, capital light enabled, Or something else, you know, this fake it till you make it culture is very real and something I think we all need to be on guard
3: against. Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said, in all likelihood, the vast majority of frauds were not set out initially to be frauds. You know, you you get a little behind, and you can't make the payment to the bank, and you cook the books a little bit, and you always think you're going to make it up. I don't think Madoff, in all likelihood, started off perpetuating a fraud and dug himself. I think that's right. Yeah, I think think that's pretty
0: that's somewhat clear. And he was actually making a fortune in his legitimate market making business. Right. And then he just decided, or you know, somehow slipped out. I think it, it goes into the psychological principle that, you know, little tiny changes are very hard to pick up in real time. And once you start sliding down that slope of one little malfeasance or crime, you know, it kind of snowballs into a huge problem over the years. And I spent a lot of time you know, a decade or more ago, looking at Enron. I think that was kind of a similar conclusion there was it's not like, you know, Lay and Skilling woke up one morning and said, let's cook the books and have a massive fraud here. It just sort of was this slippery little slope. They went down over time that uh, ended up in disaster.
3: A disaster for a whole bunch of people. It, it cost Arthur Anderson yeah. their entire business. And they, yeah, look at shredded, yeah. shredded documents. And you've got Ernst and Young now kind of in the crosshairs. Uh, as as the uh, auditor for Nicola, and the question is, how much responsibility does the auditor have? Wirecard, I think, had Coopers right. You go back to you go back to McKesson and Robbins. You guys wouldn't remember that one, but that was a big drug and chemical company in the 1920s, and they were doing the same thing. I mean, the, uh, I think the mob might have even gotten involved, and they were making you know some kind of cosmetic or hair tonic, selling the alcohol to bootleggers. And the family was was just robbing the business. Well, Price Waterhouse was the auditor on that one. I remember it. And you wound up getting gap and gas accounting in the wake of that. You didn't have independent audit committees prior to that. Um, I think anytime, John, to your question about tangible or intangible assets and capital versus capital light, no, I, I think anytime somebody wants to perpetuate a fraud or has cheated enough to where they can't dig themselves out of the hole. They're going to perpetuate a fraud, and you know even even in co- industries like insurance and in banking. I mean, any time where your cost of goods sold are estimates, you, you're going to find people not telling the truth. And you know were General Electric's reinsurance operations committing fraud when they underreserved for for, liabil- for for liabilities? Well, who knows? It's a fine line. our, our banks, in terms of their reserving for losses, uh, you know, knowing you've got Sketchy dodgy loans on the books, and you don't reserve properly, and you're paying yourself a bunch of money in the front end. at what point does just kind of bad corporate behavior or decision making transcend and cross the line to becoming fraud? So, I'd love to hear Chano's thought on 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 the golden age because you're right, he would know. I mean, he's spent a career as a very successful short seller, and you know, maybe he's seeing a different nuance. I just think over a lot of years of watching the capital markets, I've seen countless, countless. Um, frauds and even participated in one not as a fraudster but as an expert witness in a, a lawsuit some a law, a law firm got sued by a law firm and I'll tell the story sometime so there was a pink sheep company that was absolutely a fraud that has been that had been pledged as collateral as escrow in a big real estate transaction and you know I got brought in to try to unearth whether there was any legitimacy to this business and <laughs> it was it was the you know usually last week I talked about the imperative of knowing why you stop the research process, Well, you get to a couple three red flags and you stop. and when you're engaged as an expert witness to dig into what what actually turned out to be a massive fraud, um, you know I've spent I've spent a fair amount of time digging into this thing and I guess I've, I've half told the story now, so I'll tell more of the story. There was a family sold a bunch of real estate, like I say they they took instead of taking cash, the buyers who were out of Boca Raton, Florida, and somewhere in South America—I know this thing ties into Colombia—but they wound up convincing the, the sellers to take cash as the escrow down payment. Which, you know, to the extent the deal didn't close, the sellers were going to keep the, the escrow payment, and the, the, the shares were in a company called Vertigo Theme Parks that was developing a amusement park in the middle of Colombia. And you looked at the map and kind of the urban density, and having owned Cedar Fair back in the day, there was no way you could, there was there was enough population to justify a theme park? And then they said they were going to build one in Mexico. Um, you know, the company that that, that was, the, the quote, you know, theoretically developing the theme park, uh, had said they had $5 billion or $10 billion or something on that order, in these Mexican bonds, and when you had tried to read the bond indentures, they never had the right name and nomenclature for them. The whole thing was just an absolute fraud from the start. And, you know, I think, you know, you listen to a guy named Ian Castle, who's such a good small cap and micro cap investor, you know, my guess would be, and I don't know the degree to which, which Jim would drill down to, you know, really tiny micro caps. But, you know, my sense has always been that world of really small businesses publicly traded are just rife with all kinds of bad behavior and fraud.
2: And what is it with Boca Raton and places like Utah, where like those two seem to pop up in so many instances of it?
3: <laughs> Arizona's and another, but Florida. I mean, I've 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 always joked and kind of kidded that if if I had to go away for thirty years and put all of our capital into every publicly traded company in a state, well, you'd invest in some place like Minnesota, maybe Iowa, where you just have good honest people running businesses that have Midwestern values and culture. The last state in the world you'd ever do that with would be Florida, which is just kind of famously full of shysters. Um, I'm not sure I've ever looked at an honest business in Florida, frankly. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have said that. I guess...
1: um, Edit that out, John. Well, uh, yeah, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, you know, maybe Chano's would also have said or or did say that it's also the kind of the golden age of exposing frauds right now i think because we have so many short sellers and and these short researchers like hindenburg which you know if it, if they hadn't existed i guess these some of these questions about nicola would not have been raised so maybe it's also just that in this day and age we're actually just Having this more visible, you know, maybe in in times past, like thirty, forty years ago, no one would really cared until a thing really blew up. Um, so, you know, that's that's perhaps another reason why it might seem like there's more fraud uh, these days.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. That's a with good point. I think as a genre of story, as a genre of news, and sensationalized in the movies and etc. Like people have a natural allure to these kinds of stories. So there's both incentive to discover them, but, you know, incentive in terms of like, you could obviously short and make money, but also it becomes a very good story. So you could sell a lot of press and media and earn a big uh, presence. And, you know, like people tend to, um, for whatever reason, uh, you know, it's kind of like a new tabloid uh, genre that people absolutely love. Um, so I, I I very much agree with you there, John. We also have whistleblower payments, right? I mean, I
0: could yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I mean, Terry Markopoulos was heavily involved in in exposing Madoff, and I believe he collected a whistleblower payment on that. But then he turned around and almost tried to recreate that with GE. And look, despite all of GE's problems, I'm not so sure his uh, attempt there was successful. And I think that could have been a case of, you know, if it worked once, let's try it again. I don't know. I mean, I'm really not, I, I remember reading the allegations and, you know, unlike some very simple, logical conclusions he had about why Madoff's returns were impossible in the options market, um, it was not necessarily clear in a lot And to, and to John's point, yeah, look, I mean, short selling has been miserable and hard. It's always been miserable and hard, but, um, you know, the ability to use social media and technology to amplify your claims both on the long and the short side has never been higher. So yeah, yeah. There's probably some offsetting uh, considerations there for sure.
3: Well, there's also suspension of belief. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're in a deal and you're making a whole bunch of money and you're getting rich, the last thing you want to do is sniff into the fact that you're, you're in bed with a fraudster. I mean, I remember reading Mark- Markopolis's paper that he had submitted a couple versions of to the SEC. So he was way ahead of this thing. And right. as, as I recall, the brunt of his, the, you know, the brunt of his research showed that you guys remember Madoff was was running running the investment, which was separate from the broker dealer. He was totally ring fenced from everybody in the firm, including his kids, and. All of the clients, there, there were. He was basically running an option collar strategy, right? And in theory, he and, and, and he and he, he zeroed out everybody's account balance at the end of each month. So you were into an option strategy during the month, and you were out of it. And how any institutional investors kind of bought off on this? I remember Mark Carpo showed you know, the, the dollars that he was running were so large that you could not find the prints in the option markets that justified the sizes of the trades to be able to get into and initiate the caller at the beginning of a month and close those positions at month end. So it was way beyond the fact that the thing was making a very smooth 10 or 11% a year. It was the impossibility of the trades. And, you know, that went on for a long time and it took the SEC a long time to actually get into it. And that, you know, if you'd read his paper and got it, it was just obvious that this was a massive fraud, but you were getting rich and you were making big money and, why do you want to? Why you want to rock that apple cart?
1: Well, maybe just one last observation from me. I, I'm wondering whether kind of the the threshold for frauds has gone up in the sense that people just don't really care anymore about little frauds or people kind of cooking the books in small ways. Uh, let's say. Um, Because I feel like some of the allegations that have been made against some prominent public companies these days are credible enough that they, you know, 10, 20 years ago, they would have been investigated by the SEC and and others. And today it's kind of like, well, that's the way of doing business. And uh, it's, you know, unless it's a huge fraud, we're not really going to go there. Uh, Do you guys feel that way at all? Yeah, that's the interesting part about the
0: fake it till you make it kind of culture or the mini fraud culture. I mean, whether it's startup entrepreneurs, you know, executives, even politicians, where if you're clearly lying about something, people just say, oh, well, that's fine. I'm willing to just overlook that because this or that or the other thing is is so good or that, that one lie, but this is a truth. And they just kind of play this bizarre mental accounting game where the cognitive dissonance just kind of makes your head explode. Uh, that, that's the part that I find almost more interesting than anything else, along with the brazenness of some of the mega frauds. I'm not quite so sure about the prevalence overall of fraud. But again, I think you've, you've hit it exactly. This this willingness to kind of look the other way or pretend like this isn't a problem is what I find maybe most confusing.
1: Okay, guys, well, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for another great discussion. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Looking forward to talking to all of you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research driven membership organization. Learn more at MOIglobal.com.